welcome again to the Strange Brew podcast. My name's Jason Barnard. You haven't heard anything yet because this is another special podcast. This time it's me in conversation with Glenn Matlock, famous for the Sex Pistols, Rich Kids and much more. This is me speaking to him for the Cat Club at the Robin Hood in Pontefract on the 3rd of December 2023. Every month there are interviews with a range of artists and people in connection with their favourite albums. So just search for the Cat Club podcast, Classic Album Thursdays on Spotify, Apple and some of the major podcast providers or go to thecatclub.co.uk to find out more. But here's me in conversation with Glenn. We've had so many, many great guests here, but we've never had a rock and roll all of famer until tonight. Will you please welcome the truly wonderful Glenn Matlock. <laughs> Typical sexual pistol fashion, he's smashed the mic already. <laughs> <laughs> I was going for the cuddly toy. Evening all. Hello. Hello Glenn, um, thank you so much for coming to Pontefract. My pleasure. In the snow. Well, it wasn't snowing until I got here. <laughs> so I like to feel I brought the snow a little bit. Yeah. It was funny. I, I, I've driven through Pontefract a few times. I've never actually stayed here. And I'm staying in a hotel out of town. Maybe a few of you were there. But when I arrived, there was all these cars there. And there was nowhere to park. So I had to park right down the end and lugged my little suitcase. Walked in. Easy on my mind's blaring. <laughs> There's a blinking Elvis impersonator in it. <laughs> really, it was rammed. <laughs> so, I didn't, I didn't go to that, but when I was waiting to be driven here by Rev, they'd finished and all filed out, but I looked through the window and there was Elvis with a, a pie and a pint. <laughs> Good man, I thought. Yeah. We spoke briefly before, and I, I, we were discussing triggers, a life in music, and I, I don't know why more artists don't do what you've done, which is basically weave your story through songs, because for those that love music or are involved in music, songs, whether it's your own or other people's, help shape our lives. So it was just a, an obvious concept to put this in. Well, um, it wasn't my idea, actually. I'd written a book called I Was a Teenage Sex Pistol a long time ago, kind of before people did books about their career thing. And it kind of got lost a little bit. And then somebody approached me about doing this book, and I said, well, I can't do the same book again. And I've got, I've got a literary agent. He said, well, how about doing the chapters based on song titles? And I thought, what a jolly good idea. So that's what we did. And it kind of worked, you know, because they're the triggers, the, the songs are the triggers that get you thinking, you know, something that you like in your life. Some of the songs are songs I've written, some of the songs that have affected me, and why they affected me and some stories that are led to kind of thing. So I think that's gone down quite well in some quarters. So let's hope it goes down well in all the other quarters. <laughs> <laughs> Can you hear me all right? I tend to mumble a little bit. See, if you've seen Elvis with his mic technique, you like... <laughs> And when I was turning the page and then I just saw King's Dead End Street, I thought, what a great choice because it, it does seem to sum up that that post-war, maybe there was some bombed-out areas, the end of rationing. Was that your like your childhood? Yeah, kind of. I'm a bit too young for the end of rationing, but, but certainly in London, 
There was loads of bomb sites that we used to play on. It was kind of quite austere. We lived in the top floor with a two up, two down, with a tin bath and paraffin eater, and we had an electric fire, which my dad was always saying, don't put more than two bars on because of the cost of it. But we had a cat, and a cat called Jenny, who was my granddad, my dad's dad, used to work at a power station. In fact, during the war, he was an essential worker because he worked in the power station. Anyway, he was getting older by then, but they had a stray cat, like a wild cat who lived in the power station who had kittens, and we had one of them, that was Jenny. But one day, she got chased in by the local tomcat who sprayed on the second bar <laughs> of the thing, right? And, you know, so we could have two bars on, and he could have either a three on, two or one. <laughs> but every time you turn just a second bar on, it stunk of cats, whatever it is. It was only, it would be just years. I don't know why they didn't change the bar, but we didn't. So it wasn't the warmest um, 60s that I had. But, you know, it was kind of cool. I never went hungry. I had quite a family um, uh, unit. I mean, we lived at 18. I mean, they lived at 28. And my uncle lived upstairs. So it was like that back then, you know. It's like a little close networking class community. But we didn't have a lot. And I knew there was other stuff going on. And so in the really early 60s, when you listened to the radio, there wasn't a pop music station. Oh, the only time you could hear pop music was on the Sundays. I think it was the Jimmy Savile program. <laughs> <laughs> or was it Alan Freeman? You know, it's called The Sound of the Swinging Symbols, that piece of music. And then on Saturday mornings, there was the Brian Matthews show that played um, pop music interspersed with clips from comedy programs, you know, like Round the Horn and um, The Navy Lark and... Uh, Hancock's half hour. So it was kind of that. But I thought, well, if there's the top 40, how can you get to hear the music to decide what's going to be the top 40 or top 20 or something? Because it didn't exist. And then around about that time in the early 60s, mini transistor radios come out and all the kids got one for Christmas and you'd have it under your, your pillow. And then you'd hear like Radio Luxembourg or the American Forces Network. You know, we like proper rock and roll music on it. And then... That kind of coincided with the pirate radio station ships starting up. And that coincided with kind of the birth of British kind of rock music, you know, like the Idol Race, the Stones, Beatles, obviously, Dave Clark Five. Yes. The <laughs> sound of Tottenham. <laughs> and um, the Kinks. And then this song came up, maybe a bit later on, maybe my chronology of the whole thing isn't spot on but a song came out called Dead End Street and it just really sort of rang a bell with me out of work and got no money Sunday joint of bread and honey there's a crack up in the ceiling and the kitchen sink is leaking then he goes on about emigration and everybody was talking about £10 poms when you could go to Australia for 10 quid and actually in later years a mate of mine is Clive Langer and he yeah. married this girl um, it was a whole team of people who Mel right and they used to run a shop in London called Swanky Modes, and madness sort of hung out there and all that. But she told me that, yeah, dig this, in the early 60s, her family were £10 poms, and they emigrated to Australia, went all the way there on a boat. When they arrived, her mum decided she didn't like it, and they came back again. <laughs> 
But I like to think that maybe her mum was having a fling with a head purser or something like that. <laughs> yeah. There's something very different about the Kings because you've got Dave Davis' guitar sound, but you've got Ray's lyrics, and even the video of Dead in Street, and we'll play a clip of that shortly. You know, we've got Undertakers, so it's very different to other groups, and I guess you wouldn't have seen the video at the, the time. But... Well, I, I, I have seen it since then, but the other thing that was going on round about then was um, we had the best TV programme ever. I'm sure you got up here, but Ready, Steady, Go, where all the bands that I mentioned would play on kind of live sometimes, and then Dusty Springfield was always on the show, and she discovered some of the Motown music, and she insisted that they have the, those people on. So you'd see, like, uh, Smokey Robinson and Miracles and Dion Warwick and The Supremes and Martha Reeves and Vandellas. It was fantastic, and I don't think that's ever been eclipsed, but the Kinks were on there quite a lot, and um, I dug it. And I also think the Kinks were one of the most important bands ever musically, because I think they invented rock music. You know, like, you really got me, da 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 up to the kinks that come along, if you know anything about music, it was all sort of based on 12-bar blues. Every other band would have gone, da 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 But they didn't. They went up a two-semi-tank, da 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 That's a really important thing in the history of music, and that kind of led to kind of riffs and stuff in rock music. So that was important for loads of reasons. And I think Ray Davis's lyricism, he could really... You know, paint a picture with his lyrics. Let's uh, play a dead end street. Do you see, there's kind of a bit of a lineage to the Pistols, because reflecting real life around them rather than just love songs. Yeah, that, that kind of got me thinking. I'm sure John was kind of hip to them too. Steve and Paul, we all grew up with the same kind of things. Yeah, a funny little story. When we was touring in 2008 in America, we hired... Like a sleeper bus, and we was in Los Angeles, and we was pulling out, right? And there was some American punks, you know, who was going like that. To us, yeah, you know, anarchy, rock and roll, and there was a DVD player in the back of the, like the little sound bit in the back of the coach. And we went, oh, we didn't bring anything, right? And Steve says, don't worry, I've got it covered, lads. And we thought, oh, me and Paul went, oh, for fuck's sake, I bet it's all porn we're going to have to watch. <laughs> No, so as we're pulling out and these punks are going like that, Steve slots a DVD in. Perfect example of all we grew up, we all grew up the same thing. Summer already, be a cliff for a show. You know, and he turns up in a bus, and it's fantastic. <laughs> you were on the front page of the Daily Star for that a couple of weeks ago in the Cliff Richard reference. Was I? You saw, yeah, we've I... got, we've actually got a, actually got that. Have you seen that? <laughs> Is that new to you? I haven't seen that, no. But, you know, but Steve had a radio show. I don't know, he just sort of does it sporadically now. But he actually had Cliff Richard on the, the show, and he was really excited about it. And Cliff was just going to go and talk. But Steve and this other bloke who does the show with him, Shovel, his nickname is, they learnt a couple of songs. And when Cliff was there, they whipped out the guitars, and he joined in with them. Steve was so made up. 
And then, that was about the same time that we got nominated for being in the Hall of Fame. And Steve said, um, Steve was up for doing it as I was. John didn't want to do it because he had to pay a lot of money to get all his mates in at the table. Paul was blase about it as he's blase about everything. But Steve told me that when he went home one day, just after it had been announced, he played his answer machine. I mean, it's before the days of mobile phones. And the answer machine went, congratulations. <laughs> he said, Steve, I just heard about your um, nomination. It's Cliff. Congratulations. <laughs> he was so chuffed. <laughs> Brilliant. I think you said, and I think it's in the book, you had a, an uncle who left you some old 78 records. Yeah. I'm saying we lived at 18. My nan lived at 28. And my uncle Colin lived upstairs at 28. And he'd been a bit of a teddy boy, but moved on from that. And then adopted wearing one of those white Macs, you know, like train pipe trouser suits. And he could have either been lookwise in the Cray Twins or Anthony Newley in Gurney Slade, right? But he gave me his old 78s, and they were the first records I physically put on. And they all came in a cardboard sleeve with stitching down the side with a little round hole in the middle so you could see what it was on the label. And the first things I put on were like kind of um, Jerry Lee Lewis, Great Balls of Fire, or a whole lot of shaking going on, and Elvis, Hound Dog, I think Teddy Bear was the B-side, a couple of other things. Hootsman by Lord Rockingham's 11. You know that one? Hootsman, <laughs> yeah. there's a moose loose, a beautiful suit. What's the next bit? Hootsman, <laughs> it's a bra brick, moon lick, nick. Right. <laughs> that one, and Raunchy by um, El Bosket. But it was kind of cool, but you put these records on and they were like thick shellac. And it was a bit like, you know, when a firework, it says light blue touch paper and retire immediately. You put these things on a radiogram. And then go and hide over this other corner in case they came flying off and took your head off. But it was great. We had this old, fantastic radio going that I think, looking back, the pot needed cleaning, but it was either too quiet or too fucking loud, which was great. Right. And all these kind of big veils thing. And it was kind of cool. But that led to something else, which you're going to ask me about, aren't you? You are. You're going to, you're going to have to now. <laughs> what about... um? Radio, the blues, were you listening to? Well, um, yeah, and then with the transistor radio, I think we got a slightly bigger one, and we had, my dad had an old Morris Minor car, and we, me nan had retired to Kent by then, we'd go down, and he'd take the radio with you, because you didn't have a radio in the car, and every time you went round the corner, you had to kind of turn it to get a better reception, and it was a Saturday, I think the football results were finished, so I'm trying to get a station and turn the car, and all of a sudden this song came blaring out, which I'd never heard the likes of it before. Although, where I was brought up in London, it was a place called Cancel Green. You probably heard of Brixton. It was like another version of Brixton. And when I went to school, it was like pretty much half black and half white kids with, um, you know, second generation West Indian immigrants. And then in the summer, you know, they'd all have their windows open and they'd have like King Tubby blasting out and the scatterlights and stuff like that. And in fact, my mate Denzel, who I went to infant school with and is now one of the top ticket touts in London, you go and see a gig or outside Lords, he's there flogging tickets. The bloke I went to infant school with. Sadly, his mum and dad split up and she took in lodgers. And um, there was this guy who was like a Latin member of the scatterlights rented the room and he used to come and play in football in the street with us it was great fantastic 
So, yeah, there was all that kind of going on. But anyway, back to the radio. It was a radio, sound radio. This song came blasting out. I've never heard anything quite like it. And it was Israelites by Desmond Decker. Mm. You know, and it's like, wow, what's this? And I was hoping to hear some more stuff when that song finished. And it turned out it was this program called the Mike Raven's Blues Program, which I've never heard of before. And he mainly played blues stuff. And then towards the end, have you heard of a guy called Charlie Gillett? Yeah. Yeah, but he was like an early Charlie Gillett, except he looked like he could have been a member of the Dams. I think he was even a couple of Hammer Horror movies as well, you know, the black moustache, you know, really dark kind of black look thing going on. Anyway, I started listening to the programme and realised there was a bit more music going on than listening to Clodagh Rogers on the Diddy Hamilton show in the afternoon, you know. Although, when Radio 1 started up, I was off school, and I did hear it start off with Tony Blackburn, and I did hear Flowers in the Rain by the Moon, so that was kind of cool. Um, you had enough already. <laughs> <laughs> my, my it's the bladder, yeah. I 59-year-old bladder. All right. <laughs> How do you think I feel? Right. Um, anyway, that program finished at seven, and there was another program that started straight afterwards. Which was John Peel wasn't top gear though, it was called Perfume Garden. He played all this other stuff I'd never heard, you know, like Audience and Tyrannosaurus Rex and it was a Soft Machine, Tonto's Expanding Headband, all stuff like that. And a few other things that were kind of a little bit more pop and orientated. But like now, I'm going to help you out here. Because I started <laughs> listening to a little bit more kind of hipper music and realised that there was more hipper music. When I was about 14, 15 and all that, we used to get the bus, me and my mates. You know, when you finally get your freedom, we get the number 18 bus up to Holston and sit in the Wimpy Bar and dare each other to order a Bender Burger, which was a Frankfurter. <laughs> Did you have that up here? But it was like a Frankfurter, but instead of having a, a you know, like a hot dog roll, they tried to fit it into a round hamburger thing and they cut little slits in it and put a little bit of tomato chutney in the middle and it was called a Bender Burger and we all go oh can I have a Bender Burger <laughs> you know and the guy working there was going oh I've never heard that before you know anyway we used to do that then one day instead of going up that way we thought we'd go the other way and we went got the 18 bus down got off at the top of Labrick Road went down the Portobello Road and then crossing this place called Portobello Road which then was like the height of sort of hippiedom and stuff there's another road going across it called Goulburn Road, and there was like a little sort of mini market I went in with a record shop at the back, and I'm flicking through the records. This has all become apparent, and I found a record that was in a cardboard sleeve with stitching down the side with a hole in the middle, and I thought, oh, maybe it's an old 78 or something, but it wasn't. It was an album. I bought it, took it home. It's by a band called The Faces, put the first track on, which I lost. It's called Bad and Ruin. Shall we play it? Yeah. <laughs> there you go. I love that. that. That's probably the only clip of them doing that as well. That was from when, in the early 70s, Top of the Pops went heavy and they used to have a, a segment where they played three songs from a band. Must be been, been it. Yeah. Tell us about the influence of how much you sort of resonated with Ronnie Lane? Well, when I got this record and it was The Faces, I, I didn't realise at first that they were a spin-off small. from The Small Faces. And it transpired that with three guys, well, 
Steve Marriott, singer of Small Faces, left to form the Humble Pie with Pete Frampton, and they needed a singer. Then they got Ronnie Wood down to try out, who's a great guitarist he is, and a lovely bloke. Can't fucking sing. <laughs> <laughs> but he'll, he'll admit that. Well, he can a bit, actually. But um, anyway, he brought his mate down, Rod Stewart, who was one of the main faces around London at the time. And it just kind of clicked. But within the small faces, and when I realised Ronnie Lane was in the band, there was something about him. The small faces were always kind of different. Dare I say it, being up here in Pontefracts and being a southern Jesse Bassett. But, you know, when the small faces came out, they were a London band, you know. It all been like Beatles this and Jerry and the Pacemakers and Brian Paul and the Tremolos. Even the Hollies, you know, the Manx, you know. But that was, they were good, but they were Manx. So it was our own kind of thing and they were little kings. So the small faces were different, but within the small faces themselves, Ronnie Lane, I just kind of identified with him. And he wrote some of the most fantastic kind of gentle songs. And one of my all-time favourite songs is a song called Debris, which he wrote about his old man, which is on the Faces next album. But that led me, through digging them, on another funny thing. I'd started going out to see bands and stuff like that, and I got into this other band called the Sensational Alex Harvey Band. Mm-hmm. And I went to see him at the Marquee Club. If you notice, Rod Stewart's got a pink satin jacket on. If I get to go back to him, it just reminded me, right? And uh, maybe that one's not satin, but it's pink. But I was queuing up. You know when you buy a ticket, as opposed to some of us rock and rollers manage to blag our way in sometimes, and you're a bit like disdainful. Yeah, that was all right. But when you buy a ticket, you want to get your money's worth out of it. So there was a queue at like kind of half past six, quarter to seven, up Waldorf Street, waiting for the doors to open. And Alex Harvey Band were... Um, getting quite popular then. And then there was a door with a few steps that came down, opened, and this bloke came out in a pink satin suit with the jacket over his shoulders and swank down the road. It was Rod Stewart. I thought, what? He looked like a fucking star in broad daylight, you know. <laughs> and it turned out later that that where he came out of was this guy, Billy Gaff, who was his manager, but he had something to do with running the Marquee Club. So it all started, everything started kind of tying in and... Um, I thought, yeah, I'll have a bit of that. And I was quite pleased in later years. Um, it was about 12 years ago now. I actually, I became friends with Ian McGlagan. He played piano on a Rich Kids album, and then he did a tour with us. And I got mate with him. We got on like house and fire. Lost touch with him. Then I heard him on the radio one day, and I knew the people at the station called up and said, yeah, give Mac my number. Didn't think he'd call me up, and he did, because he'd moved to America, and we met up. And I said, what are you up to? And he said, well, you know, I've been doing this, that, and the other, and Bob Dylan calls me up. Well, oh, it's not bad. <laughs> he said, I did some stuff with Bruce Springsteen. How's that? He said, well, he pays well, but, you know. He said, you know what? I said, what? He said, yes, keep calling me up. He said, what are they calling me up for? Fucking yes. <laughs> I like a song with a beginning, middle, and an end, and I ain't got none of that. Why are they calling me? Fuck up. He was really indignant about it. I said, well, what do you really want to do? And he said, I want to reform the faces, right? Now, by then, Ronnie Lane had passed away, and I said to him, look, I know that you know, that you know, that I know, that you know, that I might be the right bloke for a job. So if it does happen, to put a word in for me. Nothing happened to me earlier, and I was trying to get Rod to do it, and I I don't quite know what happened. And he he didn't do it in the end. I think I was rocking about money. But they did do it, and they got um, Mick Hucknall, and he's a very good soul singer. 
I mean, and it was cool. And Mac said, right, you're in. He said, you sure you can handle this? I said, Mac, I learned to play these songs. I know I'm backwards. He went, great. I said, yeah, it's just forwards I struggle with. He laughed, and it kind of sealed the gig. We didn't do many gigs. We did about 12 gigs over a year and a half. But the gig, the last gig we did, we headlined the Fuji Festival in Japan in front of 50,000 people. And it was the band I was playing with that I used to stand in front of the mirror, pretended, you know, when I was still learning to play, that I was Ronnie Lane. It was great. Lovely. The best thing I've ever done, I think. It was a drag rod, didn't hurt, but there you go. But those guys, like, I mean, Kenny Jones, there's a, there's a break in that song where it goes, just goes down to the drum. I, I don't know why it's never been sampled. It would be fantastic. Ronnie was my favourite guitarist. Ian McGlagan, he's up there with Booker T, you know, he's really good. He, so I felt privileged to do that. But I think I brought something to the table as well. Yeah. So there you go. Thank you. So you also highlight Starman by David Bowie, but you saw, you didn't pinpoint the Top of the Pops version. You actually saw the liftoff with... Aisha, yeah. Aisha, yeah. I'd pronounce it. That's, in my mind, that's what I remember the most. I, I got this job and the, this bloke used to run the local football team. He said he worked for a publisher, right? But he sort of had a sideline with libraries and books, right? And I used, to, I used to wash his car on a Saturday morning, do his gardening. You know, it's sort of like your kind of money to get your Levi stay press with or go out and have a, you know, one or two snake bites every weekend. And um, in the week, he had piles and piles of books. And you know when you go to a library, it's got the dust jacket on, but it's in cellophane with paper. I had to take all the, the fly covers off and then slot them into... And he said, you know, like thousands of them. He was on the make, this bloke. He, he ran, he ran, um, look at, he had a Humber Super Snipe estate car that he would get 11 kids in, you know, had three rows of seats to go and play football. Anyway, he was, I think he batted for the other team, good for him, but, um, he was quite, um, all right about it. He let me have the tally on, and one sort of late afternoon, Liftoff of Aisha came on, I think it was on about five o'clock, and Starman was on. I thought, now this is a bit different, you know, it was kind of interesting. And on the strength of that, a bank holiday was coming up, and I went and had a, a red streak put in my hair. It's funny, that like, my school, it was really tough on not having long hair, and there was a place down Hammersmith, I was talking to Steve Jones about this, it, called Dimitri's, right? And everybody had, they, in the window, they had all like kind of rooster cuts, you know, like, um, well, like Rod Stewart a bit, or Adam Faith and Budgie. You know, that was the kind of thing. But in my school, people would have their hair cut, but you weren't allowed to have your hair over the collars, so everybody had the top bit, and it was short about it. It looked stupid, right? <laughs> so I always had my hair cut a bit like Ronnie Lane earlier on, but then Bowie come out, and I had a red flash of my hair over, like, a bank holiday weekend. I'm sort of in the lower six at this time, double mass. Don Palmer, who was like the head of the sixth form and vice, vice headmaster, scourge of my life. He's writing all this integration and algebra on the, on the board, which I always struggle with. Now, as he's writing and everybody's writing it down, he was aghast. He, he was like looking around like red flash. But the thing was, I had short air and he couldn't do nothing about it. I, I had the bastard. It was fucking great. He couldn't say anything. 
So that was kind of cool. So it was like then, there was two kind of strands of music. It was the whole faces kind of blokes thing going on with, seems like they had a laugh about everything all the time, always. It's not that far from the case since I met them. And then there was the kind of the Bowie artistic kind of, I'm an artist kind of thing. But then that led, yeah, I kind of heard some of his stuff. This girl I was going out with, her sister had quite a good record collection and she'd had Hunky Dory, which I'd heard. And then through that, I got involved, you know, the Glambok thing became really big after that. Although the following week, they had Alvin Stars on. Did you ever see that? And he's got the big, what a plunker. <laughs> Mind you, a few years ago, well, it was about 10 years ago now, I, did, I played with my band, the Philistines, up in Scarborough, holiday camp thing, but they were like a punk weekend thing. And we finished, and then we rushed across to the main ballroom, and as we got there, the band goes... <laughs> and Alvin's on, right? And he goes, right, okay, everybody, thanks. I hope you've enjoyed the show, but I'd like to now... Thank everybody who's come to the show. I like to thank, thank our drummer who stood in. Fred's not with us anymore, but old Bill stood in at a minute notice. Uh, Eddie Kidd, the thing was on the, on the side of the stage in a wheelchair. Eddie, thanks again for singing that song with us earlier on, which we missed because we was playing. I'd like to thank the sound guy. I'd like to thank the lighting guy. And he went on. And then the band stopped. He said, I want to leave you with these awesome, these immortal words. He went, boom. Coo, coo, <laughs> and everybody went, hey! It was fantastic, yeah. <laughs> so even he had his moments, and he had the gloves. Steve, you know, there's pictures of the pistols, early pictures of me and Steve are kind of going like that. You know, like, it's, we're not doing Elvis, we're doing Alvin Stardust. <laughs> so so it, all these things be kind of started blending together, and through Bowie, there's you know, that song on um, Hunky, is that on Hunky Dory? Andy Warhol, yeah, and then yeah. there's um, she's so swishy and swishy in a satin and sat frock coat. What's that one? Queen Bitch, Queen Bitch. you know, which um, oh, it's the Velvet Underground. Let's check them out. You know, then Bowie did that album with Ronson, which was fantastic. Or oh, I got to work with a little bit as well with Lou Reed, Transformer. Why is it called Transformer? Do you know? They were recording in London. Got to lunchtime. Lou and David Bowie went to have lunch. Mick stayed behind to do another guitar over up. This bloke comes in, well, bloke in the frock comes in, said, is Lou here? And he went, no. He said, well, what? He said, where is he? Well, they got to lunch. And the guy goes, well, can I leave a message? And he said, yeah, yeah, sure. You know, what's your name? And then Mick gets on what, they, what he's doing. Guy leaves. Lou, Reed and David Bowie come back from lunch. And Lou says, hey, hey, Michael, does anybody come round, you know, to call me while I was out? And he went, oh, yeah, yeah. He said, this guy. He said, well, what was his name? He said, I can't remember. I was doing this. He said, well, what did he look like? Nixon Hall. He went, well, he was one of those Transformers. That's <laughs> 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 what so I all called it. They have the album Transformers. Is that? <laughs> he, he was funny, Mick, though, actually. Poor guy. Is there where he got... He had liver cancer, right, and um, there's tablets for that, you know. <laughs> right, and um, the crowd of us kind, kind of pop, sorry? Go back a bit, Brad. All right. No, I'm for your bladder, mate. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, and a few of us kind of sort of gather around to try and take his mind off. And we all went to Walthamstow Dog Track, right, with his sister, this guy called Ray McVie, Tony Barber, who was a later member of the Buzzcocks. We all, we all went to the dog track, and Mick liked to gamble, so we put a bat, bet on. Now, the race starts, right, and Mick's kind of got, like, stage four liver cancer. There's hardly anything of him. The race starts, and he starts running off. Right, now, how long does it take for a ground to run around the track? Not very bloody long. I said, where are you going? He said, that dog on the outside looks pretty good. I'm trying to back it before the race <laughs> So he was that kind of guy, you know, they, a superlative musician. Fantastic. I got to do some stuff with him. So have I gone off topic? No. <laughs> what is the topic? The topic now is let it rock. So oh, let it rock. How did you end up down World's End and and the scene that the amount of people that we know now that either work there or visited there is quite amazing. Yeah, it was. Um, I worked at a store called Whiteley's. It's not there anymore. Um, it was like Selfridges or somewhere like that. But it's always in the wrong part of town. And I was still at school then. Liam's crowd of mates worked on a Saturday and a Friday night. One Friday, we all went to a gig to see an all-night concert at the Lyceum. I think the band's on that. We had three letter names, Ace, Man, somebody else like that. You know, and this is all pre-punk. Stayed up all night, went straight to work. I'd never been up all night before, apart from, well, I hadn't been up all night before. And we went straight to, to work. And I was in the trouser department. Now, my mate Pete Dawson... I went to school with him and got me the job there. He had some little blue tablets to keep people awake, but I didn't really want to do that. I felt fine. Come mid-morning, I started feeling a bit, you know, like jet lag, a bit woozy. Soldiered through. Now, what they had in the store, basically because they didn't trust anybody with money, they had a little kind of aluminium canister that you put the money or the check in with a sales docket. And he put in this thing, shut it, pulled this handle and went, whoosh, I can press there up to the central office somewhere in the bowels of the building. And they would send it back. And the thing was, that's all fine if you haven't stayed up all night for the first time <laughs> and you've remembered to sign to fill in the sales docket. I didn't do that, did I? And then within about 20 minutes, the whole store was in abject chaos because they didn't know where all this money was coming from. Managed to get through the day. But I thought, if I go back next week, I'm going to be for the high jump. And I'd heard that there was this shop down King's Road where I'd never been to in my life that sold brothel creeper shoes. Now, for some reason, it was like a really minor trend with some of my mates. So I thought I'd go and check it out. Got the bus down to Aaronsmith and then got a number 11 bus to World's End, which is like the wrong end of the King's Road. And the bus terminates there. And I got out and there was a shop with half an American car sticking out the back of it. I thought, this must be it. I went in there and there's all these kind of stone, kind of hippie types in there. Hey, man. You know, I'm not like a bloke with stay press trousers on, you know that. <laughs> I said, oh, do you sell brothel papers? And they went, oh, no, no, no. We don't do that kind of thing. Stack your boots, man. Anyway, this turned out to be a shop called Granny Takes a Trip where, like, the faces probably went to and the Rolling Stone, maybe the Beatles earlier on, they did that kind of dandy fashion kind of thing. But they also knew Malcolm McLaren and said, oh, Creepers, you want to go to the next store down there? So I went down there and I walked in and they got a radiogram in there and it was like walking into my nan's living room, you know, in the 50s, with 50s style wallpaper. 
got brothel troopers in there. I looked at the price, seven pounds right now. This is like 1973 or something like, whoa, you know. So I couldn't afford them. So I'm just looking around and I was taking too long to be in there and not buy anything. This guy said to me, well, can I help you? And I'm like, well, thinking about why. I said, you don't need anybody to work here, do you? And the guy went, well, as it happens, I'm leaving at the weekend. Call this guy up, right? I called up, it was Malcolm McLaren. I started the next week, and that's where I met everybody. So it was kind of a real slide indoors kind of moment, but it was a bit more than just luck. It was lucky that I found the shop and stuff, and lucky that I got the phone number, but there was something about the place. I wanted to be part of it somehow. Now, it transpired that on a Saturday afternoon, and back then, pubs used to shut in the, in the afternoon, right? Shut at three, after 20 minutes drinking up time, open at half past five. So what people would do, we would down the King's Road, we'd go in one pub and then walk up and down the King's Road slowly until the pub opened again. <laughs> That's what happened. And all these people would come in the store. And the people who come in the store would be like Susie from the Banshees. There's a guy called William Broad, Billy Idol. Yeah, it was all these kind of people. And that's where I met Stephen Paul. They came in. They had a fledgling band. For some reason, they was always trying to get Malcolm involved in the band. They need humour him about it. And I overheard him talking one day. And Malcolm went, oh, that's not you again. How's it going? How's the band going? <laughs> and Paul went, he said, well, Malcolm, we're trying to take it seriously. But our bass player never turns out. The bass player was this guy called Del Noons. He was Paul's sister's fiancé. And I went, well, I've got a bass. And they went, you have? And I did have a bass. I didn't say I could play it, but I did have a bass. So I could play it a little bit. And I, you know, all through this, I'd been sort of learning acoustic guitar, and which was my first instrument. And then somebody at school was selling this bass. And they said, what's your favourite band? I said, The Faces. And I went, so that's so ours. And then I went and had a meeting with Stephen Paul. And there was this other guy called Wally. And they had this fledgling band that had been called Strand after the Roxy Music song. They didn't really know what they was doing, but neither did I. But I went round Wally's house and played the only song I knew all the way through, which was a Faces song called Three Button Amy Down, which is a bit flash. And they went, you're in. So that was it. But I'd taken the bass I bought sheep at school. And they said, one thing though, I said, what? And they said, well, that's not a bass. You know that thing in... Um, Crocodile Dundee when he goes to New York and they, he, they, they pull a knife out of him. Yeah, that's, not, that's not a knife, this is a knife. They said, and this was before then, I think they got the idea from me. They said, that's not a bass. I said, well, what is then? And they, uh, under Wally's bed, they pulled out, pulled out a guitar case and there was a Fender Precision bass in it. I went, wow. I said, where'd you get that? They said, don't ask, so I didn't. <laughs> and then, not long after that, Ronnie Wood was doing a, um, a solo show at a state government in Kilburn, which I went to with my young lady friend at the time. And we had the cheapest tickets going. So we went in, went up, you know, a couple of flights. And then it was dark because obviously they hadn't opened the top tier. We just assumed we were in the top tier because we had the cheapest tickets going. And all of a sudden, I had this, this sort of rumbling going on. And then coming down from the darkness with Steve and Paul and a couple of their other mates all covered in soot and they bunked in over the top, right? <laughs> so I thought, oh yeah, these guys are interesting. So there you go. And then we started rehearsing. Steve was a singer. Didn't really cut it, but he was learning the guitar while he was in the band. He didn't really look right, although he could play good. 
that song I did you no wrong. That's his riff, and he never got credited for it. Credited for it, but I always backed him up. And then he finally got some money out of it, which was good. But he left, and then Steve took over the guitar. We needed a singer. We was on the lookout for a singer. And then six, nine months after that, it was when we met John. He was one of the people who came in the shop. And the rest is history. <laughs> the famous occurrence where John's miming in front of the jukebox. Well, yeah, the first time we met him, I hadn't seen him. They, 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 somebody had seen him in the shop. Because everybody, I mean, everybody back then, everybody had long hair and flares. You know, even the milkman or your bank manager or your school teacher had long hair and flares. And if somebody had short hair, and that, but they actually had hair, Right, and drain park trousers and was young, they were a candidate to be a singer for the Fledgling and Sex Pistols, which we didn't even have, have a name for at that stage. And if they came in the shop, that was kind of cool. Now, in, in the shop, you know, even before John came in, there was all these people coming in. Mick Ronson and Ian Hunter came in in a week when I was working there in a sort of half-time holidays. I sold Mick Ronson a pair of pink loafer shoes that were in the window that he wore in that movie, Ronaldo and Clara, you know, the Bob Dylan movie. And when I saw it at Camden Parkway, I told everybody. And they said, shut the fuck up. <laughs> but, um, yeah, yeah people like that and the New York Dolls had sort of been in and a bit, although I hadn't met them then. And, you know, then there's like Anthony Price and um, Brian Ferry swanking up and down the street, but Malcolm thought they were tossers, so we did too, you know. It kind of gave us quite a good sort of grounding and sort of cocksure arrogance, even though we hadn't done a gig or anything. It all, everything started kind of coming together. The time you had in, you had some rehearsal space in Denmark Street, and there was some sort of connection to Badfinger as well, wasn't there? Yeah, well, we had a rehearsal place originally, through Wally's dad, and Wally's dad was an electrician, and he got a, a contract with Amazon Council to sort of strip this fantastic film studios. It's called Riverside Studios. You know that program, Don't Forget Your Toothbrush? Yeah. Yeah, that, well, that was recorded there, but I've only found out in recent years they filmed Doctor Who there. It had gone right back to the 30s and stuff, but at that time it was this huge. So we had... That place to rehearse in, courtesy of Wally's dad. But as soon as he went, you know, we lost the place. And I was looking for the Melody Maker, which was a magazine that used to have adverts in the back. And I saw this thing, rehearsal space, lease for sale, Tim Pan Alley. I showed it to Malcolm, and he said, well, call up the guy and offer him, it sounds great, call up the guy and offer him a thousand pounds without saying it. I said, you're mad. He said, no, 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 no. He said, call him up. So I called him up. I said, well, my friend had just shown him your advert. Is asked me to call you up and offer you a thousand pounds for the lease without saying it. And the guy goes, I think we can talk business. So we went to see this place in Denmark Street. It was a tiny little place. I mean, it was a third of the size of this room, but with a room above it. And it transpires the guy who put the advert in was a guy called Bill Collins who managed Badfinger. And Badfinger, two of them were no longer with us, they had no use for the thing. He liked the cut of our chip. And sort of took us under his wing. I don't think he ever got his thousand pounds. But we we kind of, again, all these things that are kind of like concentric circles intersecting. I remember going up to his house in sort of North London. And as we was going in, his son was coming out down the sort of semi-detached house pathway. It's quite posh and gold his dream. 
and got into a, an old ice cream van that he converted into a sort of a like a Bedford Dormobile kind of thing because he was going away on rap for the first time. And his son was Lewis Collins, who then ended up in the professionals, right? So it was all these strands kind of coming together. But that's when we really started taking it seriously, and that's where the bolt with Nevermind the Bollocks was written. We did that Spunk album there. We did the backing tracks for that there. And that was our headquarters. So, yeah. And the songwriting process, you know, whether it's uh, Pretty Vacant or Anarchy in the UK, it's that fantastic combination of you've really got an ear for melody or a riff or an inspiration of something, and then it seems that John would dip into his bag of lyrics and try and find something Yeah, that pretty much what happened. But we was all sort of skirting around each other. I mean, I was 17 and a half, getting off for 18 when I first started playing with them. I was the youngest one in the band at that time until Sid came along. Then we was all just trying to find our way. You know, nobody really knew how you sat down and wrote a song with somebody. So we didn't really. We kind of, somebody would throw a riff in and start playing that. And John would be in the corner. And as you say, I had a plastic bag of lyrics. A couple of things I brought in. There was a couple of things that Steve had written, which we adapted. 17 was basically Steve's song, which John changed some of the lyrics. I put Pretty Vacant in as a finished song. And then John, I had the riff for Anarchy in the UK, which was playing, and John said, oh, great, you know, you got something for this lyric I've got. And he got this lyric because by that time we met a friend of Malcolm's, Jamie Reed, who was like a sort of right-on agitprop kind of anarchist type. You know, we'd all sit around talking about sort of rudimentary politics and things like that. And then Malcolm would tell us about how he spent time in Paris, you know, and he was sort of in love with the beatniks and he was there at the the riots in the left bank in 68. I don't know if I quite believe him, you know, but I do remember later on, we went to play in Paris in the summer of 76, and Malcolm took us for a walk. I don't know if you've any of you been to Paris and stuff, by the, on the left bank, Saint Boulevard, Saint Michel, and all that, and there's the Sorbonne University there, and he t- took us on his favourite walk. And we walked past, and I said to Malcolm, I said, look, this gig we're going to do tonight, he said, it's great, they know the words to our songs already. He said, what do you mean? And I said, look, he says, Vive Lanashi, the Malcolm went. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, these ideas started coming into the, the equation somehow. We've got a clip shortly, which is um, Anarchy in the UK, which is uh, Tony Wilson's So It Goes clip, which I think was the Pistols' first TV appearance. But did you get the sense that you were really onto something because... Oh, outside. you know what? We yeah. thought he was onto something before we played a note because he was a big-headed, <laughs> big-headed bastard who all thought, with Malcolm, that Brian Ferrari was a twat, even though we kind of liked him a little bit. There you go. Yeah. yeah. Shall we play a, a minute of it, Drew? <laughs> Do you know, it was kind of funny that we, um, they filmed that one, it was on a Sunday night, and we got there, and we thought we was doing more than one song, right? We said, well, we're going to do two songs, and they said, no, no, you're only going to do one. We said, no, we're going to do two songs. So we came to an arrangement that we could do two songs, but they would only film the second one. So we actually played Problems first, which isn't in this thing. And I broke a string in it, right? Broke a string. It does happen. And I didn't have a spare guitar. 
So we're on the stage. This is inside information now. And our roadie bloke, Mills, had to go all the way back to the dressing room and come back with a string, well, a packet of strings. And I sorted one out. I'm sitting on the edge of the stage. And to fill in, Tony Wilson starts talking with John. He said, why why wouldn't you come? We just wanted to interview you. But, you know, you insisted on playing. Are you afraid to speak your mind? Now, I'd have been having the words through Malcolm before, and he said, come on, Glenn, give it a bit of bottle. So just for a laugh, and put him strong, I said, no, it's because you're a cunt. Right. <laughs> right. And every, everybody, he, he went, <laughs> and I didn't mean it nastily, and I quite liked Tony Wilson. He did give us one of our first big breaks. And then on the program was also this other guy, Clive James, Australian guy. You know, he's been on the telly, even writer and all that. Now, it's kind of funny because when I was at school in the late 60s, we had a standing teacher who was Australian. And at the back of the class, a few of us were reading Mad Magazine. Right. And in this particular Mad Magazine, they did like a whole strip over this, about six pages in the middle of Julius Caesar by Shakespeare, but done from the point of view of American hoodlums, you know, like, um, kind of James Cagney kind of, um, oh, big American gangster, Al Capone kind of thing like that. And they changed some of the words. And instead of the bit where Caesar must be killed because he's ambitious, they go, hey, he must be killed. You know, he's got to get a slap because he's got big eyes, right? And this Australian teacher discovered it. And instead of telling us off, he made us get to the front of the class and read it out. It was kind of cool. It was fucking Clive James. He just arrived in England. He'd been doing the strip for... um, Private Eye magazine, the Barry, I think Barry McKenzie it's called, you know, sort of chundering down a big white telephone. All these things were kind of interlocked kind of somehow. Anyway, so he's on the program doing a little thing, and he got up to take over from Tony Wilson, who crumbled when I called him, we'll see you next Tuesday, and he starts having a go at John, and John made mincemeat of Clive James, who, you know, been on the telly all this time and all that kind of like, and all this had gone on, and John shut him right up, I put the string on, and we played Anna King UK, right? And that was it. And there was like all hell sort of broke loose. Went back to the green room, had a couple of drinks. I'd left my bass leaning against the amp, so better go and get it. And there's an old boy sweeping up in a, in a grey cardigan. And he said, what are you doing? And I said, it was my bass. He said, was you playing earlier on? I said, yeah. He said, well done. About time they sold those fucking like, idiots. Of the most. <laughs> you know, it was about 65 this <laughs> It was great. So, But anyway, I did a thing with Tony Wilson on his radio show, not long before he died, actually, so it was quite a while back. And we was talking about that. And he said, that night, he said, Clive James was very kind of hip to this, that, and the other. He said, that was the night he became an old man. He just didn't get it. There you go. Do you think the Bill Grundy show or incident was like a double-edged sword because it, it tipped the pistols on the front page, but also it was kind of almost too much in a way? There was Well, you know, when, before we'd done that, we'd been on the front page of the Melody Maker and NME and stuff like that, and we'd real building up a real big following with Santa EMI. We nearly didn't do the TV show because we were rehearsing for the Anarchy Tour, but we only did it because... Queen pulled out. Freddie Mercury had a bad toothache. I don't know how bad it was, but he didn't there. And we stood in because they were label mates, you know. And there was a guy called Eric Hall who was this monster. Do you know Eric Hall? Yeah. 
I read this fantastic thing about him the other day, and he called me up not long before he died. He was doing a radio show. Would I get involved in it? And I liked him. I said, yeah, it just didn't pan out. But I said, I want to know one thing. And he was like a good boy from the from the East End of London. I said, why at the top of Brook Lane there's a bagel shop, but it's, it's um, written wrong. Instead of bagel, it's B-A-I. He said, because that's the way it is, my boy. It's bagel, it's not bagel. And I never knew that, right? But there was this thing come up. It took me when Terry Venables passed away. He used to sing at this club that he had a part share in Kensington, and he'd sort of like karaoke kind of thing, like crooner. And they had some guests come down, and one of them was um, Mad Frankie Fraser, who got a, got an ASBO when he was 90, right? <laughs> right? So somebody said to Terry Venables, you know, look, Mad Frankie Fraser's, and he went, oh, we'd better tell the compere. And the compere was Eric Hall. Right, and he said, well, he said, like, you know, be careful, because Frankie Fraser, you know, don't upset him. And he said, I've got to leave it with me. And he said, okay, right, everybody, I'd like to introduce everybody here tonight. And said, we've got some people in the crowd, Terror will be on to sing a bit later on. He said, oh, look, I see, man, Frankie Fraser's here. He said, I think Terry's going to sing a song for you. I ain't got nobody, or arms, or legs, or a nose left, or anything. <laughs> you know, and all things like that. He was that kind of guy. So, sorry, where am I going with this? I don't know. <laughs> what led to you leaving the Pistols? Yes, yes, well, okay, yeah, we were talking about that. It all just became a bit much, really. I think we was a band by the kids, for the kids then. Malcolm started having delusions of grandeur and was trying to pitch as a noisy version of the Bay City Rolls somehow, something like that. He was all saying all these things. And then we got banned off the Anarchy Tour. And then I'd go and see... Blondie first coming to England, or the Rones at Dingwalls or something like that. And I'd be watching, and some guy tapped me on the shoulder. He said, here, Glenn. He said, you know your band? And I said, yeah. He said, well, I'll put you on. I said, who are you? I'm a promoter at this place here. And this thing kind of kept happening. And I'd go and tell Malcolm, and he'd go, oh, no, 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 you're banned. I said, well, he just said, he said, no, no, you're banned. Right? And it was this kind of game that was going on and I kind of wanted to join the band because believe it or not, I like playing music, you know, and I thought it would start becoming a bit dishonest and there's all this other stuff going on, the anarchy tour, it was all around the country it was kind of funny, but we didn't play anywhere, it became very factional, me and John started not seeing eye to eye, and we had a big meeting in sort of early spring of um, 77 and I knew that they sort of had a play with Sid. I wasn't supposed to know, but I did know that. I, was, I thought that was a bit shitty. And we had a meeting with me and Paul, Steve and Malcolm. And Paul said to me, he said, look, we know you don't, you and John don't get on. Can't you just pretend you like him? And I went, well, hang on a second. You know, where's all these songs coming from? You know, the music of them. I said, if you can't really see that, I don't see why I should have to do that. You know, and it was like, who was going to back her up? You know, and Stephen Paul were always throwing a junk and they wouldn't say boo to a goose. I would. He was the lead singer, and that was it. But also around that time, we signed to EMI, and I sort of befriended this guy who was the junior A&R guy who effectively insisted that Nick Mobb signed us, a guy called Mike Thorne, who went on to become a big record producer. He did Tainted Love by Soft Cell and the Communars stuff, and he did the Roxy album and the CBGB's album and all that. Up. Anyway, when all this was kind of going on, he called me up and he said, look, can I take you out for a curry? And I said, yeah. Who's buying? 
He said, EMIR. I went, oh. So we went out for a curry. I said, what's this all about? And he said, well, both myself as a friend and EMI know there's a problem within the band, and both myself as a friend and EMI hope you resolve it. But also, if you don't, both myself and EMI would be more than interested in anything that you come up with. And I thought, oh, that's kind of interesting. You know, just just turned 20 by this stage, getting a load of shit from John and not being backed up by Stephen Paul. I thought, hmm, if EMI think that, other record companies will do. So that's when I started forming Rectory. So that's that. Whether that was the right move or not, I don't know, but that's what happened, you know. Do you think the rich kids were almost a, a year or so too early? Because, yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally. I think the album was a good half an album. Some of the songs, like, I don't know, Mitch has gone on to write some great stuff, but I don't think he was really writing great stuff back then, lyrically. I think we should have waited a bit longer, but record companies always want their money back straight away. We got quite a sizable advance. I didn't rush to sign to EMI, but I started getting so much shit. I thought, well, fuck it. I will sign to EMI, you know. But Polydor were chasing us, and Richard Branson was chasing us, and CBS. And what we used to do is if we did have nothing to do on a Friday night, we'd sort of call them up at like quarter to six. Oh, we're hungry, we fancy dinner, and it was whoever would take us out. You know, it's a game you kind of play, and they did. You know, you know, you, you kind of got something. And so, that was it. And then, since the mid-90s, um, is it... Um, well, I, I, I will yeah, just say, you said it was before our time. When we used to play, you know, we go, we could go and play at Barbara's in Birmingham, and in the front row, you'd have Arthur Duran Duran checking us out, you know, before they were Duran Duran. In London... We did a re- couple of reform rescues things. One of them to, um, Steve New got rid of cancer and we did, he was still alive, but we thought we'd try and get some people down to raise some money for him. And we invited Gary from Spandau Valley, Gary Kemp, okay. Kemp down to get up and do a couple of numbers and that helps bring people in the right. And when he was rehearsing, Gary said to me, he said, you know what? I'm so chuffed. You've asked me to do this. He said, we used to come and check you out in London when you were doing club shows. He said, me doing this must have been like what it was for you playing with faces. And I, he didn't have to say that, you know, he's a multi-millionaire. But he kind of meant it. And we affected those kind of bands who come out a bit later. So I think we was kind of a bit of a bridgehead. But over the last 20 or 30 years, you've done some brilliant solo work. You've really found your own voice. Did that take time to sort of go out? Well, and... I've always done it. Um, I think maybe when I first started having a go at singing myself, I didn't really understand the right key, which actually helps, you know. <laughs> you know, and I think maybe when I did the Rich Kids thing, maybe I should have been the singer then, but perhaps I wasn't up to it. But, yeah, I do remember, after the Rich Kids, I played with Iggy Pop, and we was having, he was doing the Soldier album, we was down in Wales, we all had a drink, was chatting, and I said, well, it's all right for you, you've got a naturally great voice, you know. And he got really annoyed at me. He said, how dare you say that? He said, I've... I've worked hard every day to have a voice like this. It's work, 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 an application. I went, oh, so I thought about it. So, yeah, you just don't open your gob when it comes out, how it comes out. So hopefully after we take a break, we can uh, hear you open your... You, you're trying to shut me up now, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> <Are> we... <laughs> I don't know what to say. <laughs> we are all right. Yeah, anyway, so there you go. Anyway, I've been chuffed. I will say this, you know, through the Pistol thing, I'm very pleased that I got to work 
with people who influenced us, you know, stuff with the faces and, and Eggy, Mick Ronson. Yeah. I'll tell you one, but once, Mick Ronson in the 80s called me up. He said, what are you doing? I said, I don't know. Why? But you, what, what's up? He said, I want to form a band. I said, but who? And he said, well, I was thinking of getting Simon Kirk on drums. I went, oh, he's pretty good. He said, who's the singer? He said, Paul Rogers. I went, oh. So you got a bass player like that. He said, well, I was going to ask you. And now nothing came of it, but I was so chuffed that he even thought of me to do that. You know, and I did a bit of work with him on Ian Hunter's uh, You're Never Alone with a Schizophrenic album, which Mick got me involved with that. So, you know, to me, that was like playing with the big boys, you know. And I, in fact, I remember going up to Wessex Studios where we recorded Anakin UK to see Ian with Mick. And he was, um, during the day, he was producing Generation X, you know, their King Rocker album. You know, and I knew Billy and Tony James and <coughs> Derwood and Mark. And they said, what are you doing here? I said, oh, I'm playing with Ian this evening when you go home. And he went, oh, are you? You know, it was like, woo. <laughs> so I got to do things like that. And then I've also got to do with stuff with people... They were influenced, you know, mates with Primal Scream, I've done a couple of bits and pieces with them and other things, and it's kind of good, you know, to me, music, everybody says the Pistols is a year, year zero approach, it wasn't, I think music's like a baton race, you know, and it's the people before you hand on the baton, and then you do a bit, and then you pass it on to somebody else, and it's always a summation, I mean, the good thing with the Pistols was that all the stuff me, Stephen Paul like, which is Tamla Motown, and the dolls and all that. John hated all that. And like fucking Van de Graaff fucking generator, which we thought was hippie shit. You know, but it was that kind of clash of the, the two things that made it have a, I don't know, if you go to France and go to the south of France and have a fish stew, it's not just a bit of cod in it. You know, the wheeler bass, it's got all sort of 10 different kinds of fish in it. Tastes like fish stew, but it's a really good thick one. And that's what the testers were, you know. We were a very good punk rock fish stew. Just, <laughs> just look out for the safety pins. <laughs> yeah. So Triggers shows that perfectly. It shows that baton as the music goes one after the other, the different tracks. It, it sums it up brilliantly. Good. Well, that's the idea. I'm glad it's worked for you. I hope it does for the ladies and gentlemen of the audience here tonight. And those who are bored, I hope you enjoy it. Happy Christmas. Yeah, brilliant. Well, uh, what can I say? Glenn Matlock. Oh, thank you. Uh, Are you going to do some questions, or you had enough? Yes, yeah, do you want to do questions now or when we come yeah. back? Well, we're in now, aren't we? Right. Yeah. Well, he's, he's, I've got too much starch in his shirt. Glenn's been telling me what to do ever since I rang him up at Kingscroft, so we'll carry on in that vein. Cheers. Can you tell us definitively how much of what's on Nevermind the Bollocks is you? Right. I don't play on it, hardly. I play on Anarchy, no fun and stuff, but my claim to fame is... The vast majority of those songs are what I wrote in that, that Denmark Street rehearsal room. Right, so, but when you did the Spunk album... That's all me. That's all you. Right, and, and I think the difference is, I was talking to Mick Jones, right, and I was doing something, and I, I was playing room guitar on it, and he went, Glenn, you play guitar like a bass player, right? And I went, yeah. I said, well, the thing is, when guitarists play guitar, they play bass like a guitar player, right? And then... Never mind bollocks, it's boring. I, I like, you know, if you listen to The Who, 
my generation, what's going on in the base with what Entwistle does just takes it somewhere different. So, and that gives it the colour, I think. I I have read that all Jones did was just play root notes all the way through on the base. That's all he does, you know. You know, and then when we do play live, you know, no feelings is song. He wants me to do that. So I do it. It does it three times each chorus. So I always go, in case you like that. And I put in the run, which is my tribute to Trevor Boulder doing Hang On To Yourself. That's bass playing. Just one more. I've seen you twice. I saw you at Crystal Palace and at Brixton Academy. Do you see it ever happening again with, with, John, with John's attitude, etc.? No, I don't really want to stand on stage with somebody in a MAGA hat. So, sorry, say again? I don't want to stand on stage with somebody wearing a MAGA hat. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's fair comment. I just wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about Malcolm, what he was like, as he is. Malcolm. Oh, that's, a long, that's a long, long, long story. Malcolm is a very interesting guy. He was just a bloke at the shop who owned it when I started working there until... A bully, was he? No, he wasn't a bully. No, he wasn't a, a bloke, I said. Bloke. bloke. Um, and I wanted to go to art college. I was thinking of going to art college and I wanted to go to art college because all the bands that I liked had read had gone to art college and I, went, I thought, if I go to art college, I'll get in a band. Right, this is before I met Stephen Paul. So one day, I was in the shop and I asked Vivian, and I don't know why I actually asked her herself, but I said... I need a reference. Do you think Malcolm would give me a reference? She said, what for? And I said, well, I'm thinking of applying to go to art college. She went, well, I don't know that you want to ask Malcolm for a reference to art college. I said, why not? She said, he's been thrown out of everyone in London. (laughs) Right, and now basically I found out people used to go to art college because I never got one, but you could get a grant, you know, and there's a way to sort of fund yourself. And if you joined a few art colleges, you'd probably get a few grants. And Markham was a bit crafty like that. So he went around different ones, didn't he? It, yeah, yeah, it seems like it. But because I was playing to art, going, playing to go to art college, I be, and Vivian told me that story, I became more interested in him. And he became more interested in me. And we sort of bonded over things like that. And then when I was working in the store, you know, I used to measure people up for teddy boys for their drape jackets and things. And in fact... And also, Kilburn Yairos came in, they got a little record deal, and they wanted stage clothes, and I measured them all up for their stuff. Right? And, you know, it was kind of cool, but I had to look up the number of the tailor, Mr. Green in the East End, and call him up, you know, with the measurements, you know, the, the order for the suit. But Malcolm just had an exercise book. It wasn't like an alph- alphabetical thing. And I always had to keep flicking through it all the time to find the right number, you know, not just for Mr. Green, it was George Cox. Brothel Creek was, you know, ordering them and stuff like that. But the names and addresses he had in there, you know, like Yoko Ono, the editor of the NME, um, Caroline Kuhn, who came on the scene later on, but International Times, you know, this is like Oz, Felix, Dennis, you know, like that, the IRA. <laughs> you know, I thought, the fuck, you know, and I'm still at, at sixth form at school then, I was thinking, who the fuck is this guy? He's a bit interested. And he was. So he had all that kind of going on. Malcolm, there was another guy around called Bernard Rhodes who went on to manage a clash. They were 10 years older than us. They, they had 10 years more experience than being on the left field of things. And we had a very kind of symbi- symbiotic relationship thing. But the one thing with Malcolm, if he was in with him, he was in. And if he was out, he was out. So that whole thing 
after I'd sort of parted amicably and shaken hands with everybody, and then he sent that telegram to the enemy saying I've been sacked for like in the Beatles, which I haven't mentioned all the time since I've been here, if you notice, apart from the fact that it was great when the small faces come out because there was a London band and not a Liverpoolian thing. I thought it was really shitty. And then he had the audacity to ask for a meeting with me a couple of weeks after that when I met him for a drink in a pub called the Blue Post behind the 100 Club. And I said, what's this all about? And he said, well, it's not working out with Sid. I want you to come back and, you know, kick down the doors and be the bass player. I said, Malcolm, after you sent that telegram to the NME, I said, you must be fucking joking. And I was already starting talking to record companies about the Richfield then, for better or worse, but we had our moment in the sun. So I think he was a bit cheeky then. Thanks. That is true, yeah. But we did have, um, I did a gig with Sid, and we did have our own Yoko Ono at the soundtrack until I insisted a mic was turned down as Nancy Spongin. Has anybody seen that clip of um, John Lennon and Chuck Berry jamming yeah. with Yoko Ono? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah, there you go. Right. Yeah, no, it's not. It's a, it's a Steve Jones uh, question, really. Yeah. Um, I mean, his biography. On honestly, in terms of emotion, um, I found it one of the most emotional books really I've ever read one minute you'd be absolutely laughing your head off and the next minute you know literally for me in 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 tears yeah what on earth were it were like being with him um, on a day-to-day basis Steve is a miserable kid (laughs) but He's funny as well, and if you sit too close to him, he'll have his hand on your knee in two seconds. He's, he, he's, a, fun, he's a funny, complicated bloke. I haven't read his book, you know, I'm sure he hasn't read mine. You kind of, I've got it on the side, probably read it in the old people's home in about five years' time. You get you get a mention or two. I should hope so too, but you know, when, when the movie came out, I did. I wasn't happy with it. I was a bit disappointed with that. And I went to see Steve in, I was in Los Angeles when I was doing some Blondie stuff. And, um, I went to see him and he, he decided we should do like a podcast. So we was just chatting and he said, what do you think? I said, Steve, you got a shocking fucking memory, mate. <laughs> right. And we went through this, that and the other. And he was going, Oh yeah, right. Oh, you know, but we're kind of, we're men now and everybody's got their own take on it. But I did my first book. I said, this isn't supposed to be the definitive story of Pistols. There was four people involved in the band and others. The truth lies somewhere between. What I don't like about the way John's gone about things is he says it's all him and it's just not true. And he can never admit that. Well, we're talking of Pistol, we've actually got a star of that film here, haven't we, Dre? Dre was an extra in that oh, film. Yeah. Yes. Who did you play? <laughs> did, you, did you have a punk rock outfit on, or was you that bully at? Yeah, it was the scene where a journalist oh, gets glass, basically, and we had to shoot it about 15 times in a room with about 100 people. So I think it was somewhere called The Club in London. Don't know how accurate it was. But it was probably supposed to be Nick Kent and the Andrew Club. That, yeah, that's, yeah, that yeah. sounds about right, yeah. yeah. So it was there, and um, it was fucking boiling. It was horrible. I'd never do that again. I was <laughs> back when... I was in a band basically, and then COVID came, and then 
right. needed a bit of cash, so I thought I'll try a bit of extra work. Applied, and the first job I got was pistol. So I was in <coughs> same room with Danny Boyle. Like two weeks later, it was when yeah, it was crazy. I watched it, and it was great. But you know, obviously, you weren't, weren't happy with your representation. Yeah, there you go. But you know, the funny thing about that, there was all the younger guys. There was a call sort of went out, and I got two sons. And um, you know, when you're in the band like the Pistols, everybody thinks everybody's talking to you about you behind your back, or they're not talking about you at all, or something's going on. And I kept hearing about this sort of punk rock thing going on. I thought, What's that? And I hadn't heard anything official from anybody. And then my sons were kind of sort of involved with something. And I asked my older boy Sam. I said, "You heard anything about this punk thing?" He said, "Oh, well, all the kids in London are going down to it." I said, "What is it?" And he said, oh, it's just like a generic punk story. He was a bit cagey about it. He said, oh, I'm not, I'm not kind of, I'm not involved with it now. And then I got a phone call from the Pistols manager and said they were doing this thing and it was all going ahead. And I said, well, I'd heard something about that. And she said, well, it's, it wasn't all totally tied up. I'm calling in now because it's going ahead and I'd like you to go and meet Danny Boyle, which I did gladly at that time. I had a good chat with him. And I told my son, Sam, that I was going down to meet Danny Boyle about this punk thing. Do you know anything about this? And he went, oh, no. He said, well, I did go and see him. And I thought, nah. He said, but now since you're going to see him, I wouldn't mind a part in it. Can you put a word in for me? And I went, I can try. I mean, I haven't really met Danny Boyle before. So a bit of nepotism, but that's what dads do. So anyway, I had a meeting with Danny Boyle. I said, oh, one other thing. I said, have you cast everything yet? And he said, not totally, why? I said, well, okay. and my son said, I said, well, who do you fancy being in it? He said, oh, I'd really like to be Billy Idol, right? And I thought, well, you're not Billy Idol, but I've mentioned it to him. So he, I said, have you cast anything yet? And um, Danny Boyle said, um, well, we've still got some things we're working on. And I said, well, my son, if you haven't cast him yet, fancies being Billy Idol. And he said, is your son Sam? And I said, yeah. He said, well, we was very interested in him. I said, oh, and he said, but then he removed himself. I said, what do you mean removed himself? He said, well, we offered him quite a big part in it, but then he didn't want to do it. I mean, he was disappointed. I went, oh, whose part did you offer him? He said, Johnny Rotten. (laughs) (laughs) So no wonder my boy was was cagey, but he's in it in the end, and he he plays Danny Kleiman, who was the singer in uh, Bazooka Joe. But yeah, so you might have met him. Sam and Louis was in it as well. Excellent. Shall we break? Yeah. Okay, we'll see in 15 minutes and the man's going to play some live music for us. So, first of all, Jason Barnard, please. And the first round of applause for Glenn Matlock. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.